grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. This is part five in John's gospel. Tonight, this morning, we're looking at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. John chapter 1, 14 through 18. You have a Bible, have a Bible with you. Your own personal Bible, electronic, hard copy. Otherwise, have a Bible. Remember, you should no more come to church without a Bible than you'd come without your... That's right. You're not going to come to church without your pants, so don't come without your Bible. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, quote, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John writes now, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And as soon as he mentions grace, this other concept comes to his mind. 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Are you hearing that? 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Interesting verses. At first glance, uh, there doesn't appear to be anything new in the opening verse of our text, verse 14. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It looks like John's just repeating himself, talking about the Word. The Word was God with God. But there is something new. Verse 14 is important, and it does make a fresh contribution to John's teaching. Because verse 14 is the very first time, for all the references of the Word in this opening chapter, verse 14 is the very first time that John specifically states that the Word was Jesus Christ. They're the same. Up to this point, a careless reader could assume that the Word, it was God, it was with God, so that the Word was somehow divine, but it might just be some creative force, some supreme life principle that was active in this present world. You know, the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And now John says, the Word is Jesus. Tell you why it's important. I'm having my latte this morning, and I'm watching the news, and a commercial comes on. And it's kind of a saintly looking guy, looks a bit like Jesus. And they're introducing an app called Halo. Has anybody else seen this? 
They're introducing this app. And this guy sits, he's sitting sort of with a buddy and he says to him, he's in a chair and this guy's just kind of getting up and starting his day and, and this guy says, this can be the most meaningful Easter season ever. Get the Halo app. Now just pause, he says to this guy. You see the guy doing this. Breathe deeply. And it's kind of like a, he's contemplating something. And then at the end of this 30-second commercial, it just says, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm watching, thinking, what? I wonder how many people will think this is Christianity. Just pause. This is the instruction. Pause. Take a deep breath. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Granted, it might be better than a commercial for Budweiser. But I'm thinking, what, what is going on here? What is this person breathing and meditating on? That's what John is doing here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But he doesn't leave it like that. We've seen his, this was Jesus. He came into this world in a physical body. He did something very specific. We saw glory. We saw it. We weren't meditating, breathing, contemplating. Our eyes saw the glory of God in the Word, who is Jesus Christ. John makes the incarnation specific in this very unique way. For example, this might not be relevant to many of you. Some may have read the seventh book of the famous Confessions of Augustine. It tells how not long before his conversion to Christ, he had a friend who introduced him to some Latin writings of Plato. Humor me for a minute. And Augustine was stunned to find much in these words that resembled John's gospel. Here's what Augustine writes after reading these ancient Latin documents. He said, quote, I read there that God the Word was born not of flesh and blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but of God. But that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, I didn't see there. And that's what opened his eyes. This is John's unique, as he writes it, shocking, shattering statement in verse 14. We hear laid bare the unique cornerstone of New Testament Christianity. The Word came here in the flesh of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And John chooses that blunt word, flesh. Not humanity, person, flesh. The Word became flesh, 14. And he does that, he does that because then as now, my imagination can't picture God being that tightly bound to the likes of me. 
the heresy in the New Testament church was called docetism. And it was the idea that the divine is too pure to ever take on material. So Jesus, Jesus was divine, all right, but he just looked like a man. He wasn't really a human being. God, God doesn't come that far down. So it's almost like an angel-like appearance. A holy God could never take on human flesh. John says he did. Okay? John says we saw this. That's his pronouncement. The word became flesh. And even John couldn't have imagined all that this unbelievable enfleshing would entail. I'll bet you John's jaw would have dropped had he read these words from the Apostle Paul. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Not just flesh, sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is profound. This is not cold truth. This is doctrine for your heart today. It's truth for your worship. As we start to unfold this idea, I hope you'll see where John is trying to take us all. God came into human flesh. Did you know, did you really know that God became as fully human as you are right now. Not just sort of like you. He became as fully human as you are. He's been you minus your sin. That means, even though perfectly holy, Sin isn't a surprise to our holy God because he's been me. He's not repulsed by me. Do you get it? You get it? Because he's been you, he's not repulsed by you. That's how far he came down. He longs for your holiness, true enough. But he desires to make you holy by bearing your sin and then drawing out your love, not just some cold command, as we'll see in a minute. That's the glorious difference between the grace of God through Jesus Christ and the law of God through Moses. It isn't that law cares about holiness and grace doesn't care about holiness. It's not that. It's that grace supplies a different fuel. We long to please him out of grateful hearts. All of that is introduction, but we're well into it. Don't panic. Point number one. If we will see God's glory in its fullest form, we must see it in the flesh of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As all the commentaries ceaselessly point out, that word dwelt, right there, dwelt, literally is translated tabernacled or pitched tent among us. And our minds are instantly taken back. If you have any Bible background at all in your life, your mind is taken back to Israel's wilderness wanderings, the tent, which we all know was called the tabernacle. And the word John uses in that 14th verse, dwelt, is exactly that word, tabernacled. We're supposed to think about how God's glory appeared. And when they went into the tent of meeting, tabernacle, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work, and then, and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the, there's the word, glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Short all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Make sure you see the point now that John is trying to make. In that 14th verse of John chapter 1, it becomes important because of John's comparison of the glory of God in Jesus Christ and the glory of God that filled the tabernacle. Because the glory of God that filled the tabernacle is done. If you found that tent today, there's no magic in it. You could barbecue hamburgers and serve anybody you want. The glory isn't there anymore. It's permanently, permanently in Jesus Christ. Jesus Human flesh is the fulfillment of all that that temporary tent in the wilderness was only pointing to. The tabernacle in the wilderness was never intended as a permanent meeting place for God and man. Never was. What the earthly tabernacle was temporarily and in part, Jesus is permanently and in completion. So, the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ, it was in a different manner from the other dwelling places of God. The temple itself was a passing, imperfect house for God. The centrality came to an end when the atoning work was done in the physical flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there's proof of that. The visible proof that God said, There were these manifestations. There were places where I promised to meet, but they were temporary. They never accomplished what they were designed to accomplish. But we saw glory in Jesus Christ, and it was permanent. 
and it accomplished something forever and ever. It opened in Jesus Christ, the way to God is forever open, and there's proof of it. Is that up there? Can you see it? Matthew 27, 50, 51. Read it out loud with me. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Notice, I read somebody saying, you know, so the explanation for the veil, this is veil to the temple, the holy place, which was closed. And it's opened up when Jesus dies on the cross. And I read somebody just recently explaining, well, there was an earthquake, and it just shook everything. The text is pretty clear. First, Read it again carefully. First, the veil is torn from top to bottom. Then the earth shakes and trembles. What's happening? What's happening with this torn veil? Well, you had that tent in the wilderness. Moses couldn't even go in there when the cloud was so thick, the glory of the Lord. There's no, there's no accessibility. And the temple... There's the holy place, and then the holy of holies. Once a year, the priest goes in for the sins of the people. They can't go wandering in there. They'll die. But we saw glory in Jesus Christ of a different kind than the glory of the smoke that filled the tabernacle. The glory was this. Forever and ever and ever and ever, sinful people who repent can come through Jesus Christ, into the presence of God in a way they never, ever could before. We beheld his glory. There's more. We know that the flesh of Jesus Christ is still the abiding, right now, the abiding revelation of Father God and his grace because the work of the incarnation, this enfleshing, of God in Christ has never been undone. Apostle Paul makes it. It's a bigger truth than people see. Paul says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. See those words? The man, Christ Jesus. Note carefully. Our present redeemer and our present mediator isn't some spiritual Jesus Christ. We sang a song, a good song, just a few minutes ago about Christ in me, Christ in me, Christ alive in me. By his spirit, Christ is alive in you. The man Christ Jesus isn't in you right now. He's at the right hand of the Father. Everybody understand? He is the permanent meeting place between God and mankind still today for all mankind and forever. That's why he is still the man, Christ Jesus, at the right hand of the Father. It's hard to take big truths and get our minds wrapped around them. The New Testament constantly talks of this new creation that's coming, right? New heaven, new earth, new creation. That's going to come. How do you know it's going to come? 
And the way you know it's going to come first, you have God's word on it, which is pretty good. But the reason you know it's going to come is because it's already begun. In one pinpoint of a place, the new creation is already completed, and it's in the resurrected, ascended, physical body of Jesus Christ. That's step one of the new creation. And he is the access point, the entry point to this day for anyone who wants to come to God. And we know that because he's still the man, Christ Jesus, incarnate, doing the same work, interceding, keeping the door open. This is a great missions text. John is saying, if anyone's going to find God now, they have to come to Jesus Christ. Jesus' flesh is where the glory of God dwells in completeness. Like that earthly tabernacle was the place where Israel encountered God, Jesus is the place God dwells to meet this fallen world. See, John's text, especially that 14th verse, is tailored for a world like ours. Because our world, by and large, is not full of God-rejectors. There are some, but not the massive majority of population. Our world is full of people committed to finding God through other religions, other sacrifices, other prophets, other visions, their own morality. That's John's concern in this text. The word from our creator, the light and life that he wants to bestow is given only through the flesh of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why from this point on, here's something interesting. From this point on, John will never again use the term word to describe Jesus. He's done. It's as though he wants to emphasize the actual physical person of Jesus, the man that was seen by all the apostles to designate Christ. Our mediator will, from this text on, constantly called by the very common earthly name, Jesus. Or to show his unique relationship to the Father, sometimes the Son. Point number two. Notice this wonderful balance of grace and truth. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory from the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When John speaks about having seen his glory, to what is he referring? We saw his glory. What's he talking about? Well, he doesn't. Tell us specifically. Is it that he saw Jesus multiply the loaves and fishes? He saw his glory. Is it he was in a boat and saw Jesus talk to the waves and said, peace, and the whole sea just drops to a dead calm? Shouldn't whistle, probably. Is it that he came to a blind person, put some mud on his eyes, and boom, made him see perfectly, instantly? Those are glorious works. But I think, I think, 
the way he includes in the same sentence those words grace and truth, right on the heels of we've seen his glory, I think it takes our minds in a different direction than just the miracles. I think the glory of which John speaks is the glory of seeing the lengths to which God the Son, the one who created all things, was willing to go to bestow grace on the undeserving. I think that's the glory. Remember this, John writes his gospel after the historic facts of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's not writing this while he's following. It's after Jesus has ascended. That's what makes him cry out, oh, we saw such grace. We saw it. We saw God dwelling in the body of Christ for the purpose of atonement and mercy and forgiveness and grace. Again, remember, the Apostle John writes his gospel from the perspective of having already seen Christ crucified and risen. And then he writes, full of grace and truth. I don't think he means truth as opposed to falsehood and lies. I think the Greek word more refers to reliability, trustworthiness. Nothing in this culture, nothing in this world trains me to expect grace for my sin. John says it's truth, full of grace and truth. Three, the superiority of Jesus Christ to any other prophet or teacher. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, comes after me, ranks before me. Those are the words. Because he was before me, the time words. He says, he ranks before me. John knows that his ministry came before Jesus in terms of sequence. He knows that. He knows he was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. And he has certainly great prophetic acclaim. Jesus reminded some people that among all those born among women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said about him. But then Jesus makes his appearance. His saving work starts to unfold. And John, wonderful, humble John, has the good sense to tell all the listening world, he comes after me, but he's before me. This, this, he outranks me. There's no one like this. There are no competitors. There are no other prophets. Point number four. Here's the part I want to talk about for a minute. I hope it encourages your heart. There's an unending dynamic to the advance of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And from his fullness, here's the words I want to look at. We have all, who does he mean? There, we have all received. And then he says, grace upon grace. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And these verses make me ask questions. I ask questions of these verses. To which recipients of grace does John refer when he says, we have all, I should clean that up, shouldn't I? 
when he says we have all received. Who's he talking about? We know, I said earlier, John writes these words approximately 50 years after the death of Jesus. So that word all, it's important because that word all would include others beyond merely those who lived and met Jesus Christ physically while he was on earth. Because he writes 50 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, and that's where he says, we have all received this grace. So my conviction is the words we have all received are church words. People to whom John writes, after Jesus is already dead, risen, and ascended. When he says, we have all received. Right here. Church words. People who lived after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. These words are describing the way people continued to encounter the life-giving power of the Word made flesh after the Word made flesh was no longer here on earth. We have all received means the gospel. And he says we've received... We've received grace upon grace. In other words, the grace didn't stop flowing. The same grace that first lit this sin-darkened world in the visible flesh of God the Son continues to this day to turn darkness to light for at one time, this is, Jesus is long gone from the earth. Paul writes, at one time you were darkness, now you're light in the Lord. Do you see it? We are at no disadvantage because we weren't physically alive when Jesus' body hung on the cross. No. From his fullness, we have all received. And something else. Notice that phrase, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That's part of John's contrast between grace and law. He'll continue it in 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. And John means to show there's a one-time givenness to the law, right? It comes, Moses writes down, the finger of God carves the law. It's given at one specific point in time. And if Moses hadn't given it, well, someone else could have very easily, whomever God chose. But grace, grace came specifically through Jesus Christ. And I think here's what John means when he compares that with law. You can learn the law but you're never finished with grace. Grace is an ongoing dynamic. Grace upon grace. You and I constantly need fresh grace. I needed it this morning. It's an ongoing dynamic in my discipleship. So we never actually just receive 
grace. What we receive is grace upon grace. We receive grace over and over. The law, any law is different. You can study the law, but you have to receive grace. Everybody, brighten the rest of your week, remembering that this grace isn't any less real or potent just because we have never seen Jesus Christ in the flesh. Paul says, John says, 50 years later, we've still, we've all received it. The same grace flows. John says, even to those who first read his words, some of whom were born after Jesus ascended into heaven, from his fullness we have all received. Grace keeps flowing. It hasn't stopped. It comes grace upon grace to people who mess up over and over. It comes to people not like tablets of stone that you read. How could John say it better to sinful people? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. His mercies are new when? 365 of them this year. They'll be there. Grace upon grace upon grace. Here's the last point. The end of the prologue actually places us right back at the beginning, and I want to show you there's something beautiful in that. Look at the 18th verse. No one has ever seen God. The only God, isn't this interesting? The only God who is at the Father's side. Do you see the reference to the Trinity there? He has made him known. So the very first verse of John's gospel, remember, has the son, was God with God in his existence before the world was ever created. And this last verse, verse 18, has the son back at the father's side. Same place. So, so. Here's what I see John doing. It's brilliant and it's comforting. Before John begins to unfold all the earthly events of Jesus' life, he's going to. The miracles, the opposition, the hatred. Before John begins to unfold all the events of the earthly life of Jesus, he tips his hand. The son is back at the father's side. The son's mission is already completed. It's already a success. There is nothing that's going to stop it. He puts the end of the story in the first chapter. We'll get all the historic earthly details, but the point of the son's coming, it's already been accomplished. Sin has been defeated. There's grace upon grace. The dawn of that still to come, complete new creation can never be stopped. The fact that we can't see him now doesn't make his will any less sure. And that's why John included that little detail about the hiddenness of God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So here's what we do. You look to the flesh and bones, the actual completed mission of the Son, 
And that is faith's resting place. The end is wrapped up already in the beginning of his gospel. You're safe there. You're forgiven there. Your future is assured there. And I would say to you, that's good stuff to take home from church.